All right. If you're an astute observer, you notice something's different this morning, and that's that I've got a music stand and a handheld mic. And the reason for that is because I made a calculated decision this morning to get an extra 20 minutes of sleep because I was in Iowa doing a fall retreat for the church that I was formerly employed by Veritas Church. And um, so I drove to Iowa on Friday for four and a half hours. I spoke at the retreat on Friday night. Then I spoke at the retreat on Saturday morning. Then I spoke at the retreat on Saturday night. And then right after I was done speaking at the retreat on Saturday night, I literally walked out of the tent, got in my car, drove home, got home at 1230 last night, and now I'm here. So that's my weekend. It was awesome. Such a fun weekend. And one of the highlights for me, having uh, been in Iowa City before I was here for five years and seeing God work in there was seeing his work continue without me. There is such a joy in knowing that it is God's work that he is blessing. And one of the first people I met when I was on this retreat was this guy who had just come to Christ like two weeks prior. And so I'm having a conversation with him. Ryan, who's the college pastor there, is introducing him to me as the pastor of our church. And we get into this conversation, and about five minutes into the conversation, I started telling a story that kind of had a shocking detail in it. And this kid, without even thinking, just goes, what the F? And then he gets this look on his face like, I just said, what the F in front of a pastor? I go, oh, it's okay. I've been a Christian for like 30 years, and I still cuss sometimes too. You know? and, uh, but anyway, what I was thinking was, I was thinking this, in a sense, this conversation, this moment that I'm having, is the vision of our church. And here's what I mean by that. We want Salt City to be a messy place because we always want sinners here. We always want new believers here. We always want people here who are in process of maturing and becoming more like Christ. And we know that in aiming to reach college students with the good news of the gospel, that it's going to get messy. And we embrace that. And that's part of the reason that this semester we're going to be studying the book of 1 Corinthians. Because I think that the church at Corinth was a lot like our church. And the Apostle Paul spilled a lot of ink writing to this church to encourage them that he was thankful for them and that he believed in them and that he thought that there was more for them. And I think part of the reason is because of how the church started. So we get a glimpse into how the church at Corinth started in Acts chapter 18 verses 9 through 11. It was a miracle of God's grace. Luke recounts what happened and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So Paul was so discouraged in his ministry, that he was about to leave Corinth. He was about to ditch them. And he had this vision in the night where God said, I have many people in this city. 
In other words, God's like, I am going to save people purely by my grace, not because of their works, not because you're a great preacher. I have people in the city, and so I want you to preach the gospel in this confidence that I am the God who saves. And Paul believed him, and he stayed in Corinth a year and six months, and he got to see the birth of this church. And so now we get the privilege of reading a letter that he wrote to them. And he's celebrating new life in their midst, miraculous conversions, but he's also recognizing there's some really messed up things in the church that need to be corrected. There's sexual immorality, there's greed, there's definitely immaturity, and there's definitely quarreling, bickering, and fighting. They're a close-knit family, they're really messed up. And what we're going to see in this passage as we look at the intro to 1 Corinthians is we're going to see that new life is a beautiful mess to be thankful for. How should we respond as Christians when we get around other Christians who are messy? We should be thankful for them. There's three reasons that this is true. The first one is that you, that is you Christian, you've been set apart. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verses 1 through 3. It says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So right away, we see that Paul sees the church of Corinth in sort of attention. He says that you're sanctified. That means that you're set apart, that you're holy, that you're righteous, that you have been perfected in God's eyes for no other reason than by the blood and the righteousness of Jesus. So when God looks at you, Church of Corinth, I want you to remember this. He sees you as an absolute beauty. You can never be more righteous than you are right now, not because you have cleaned up your attitude and your life as a baby Christian, but because of what Jesus has done for you. So you are sanctified. Past tense, E-D, sanctified. It's finished. It's done, which means God has noble purposes for your life. So every time that he calls you out or seeks to convict you or asks you to change something in your life, that is in the context of him being your loving heavenly father who wants what's best for you, not your judge who is being nitpicky with you. So that's the first thing. Paul sets it in context. He says, you have been sanctified. But then he puts that intention with called to be saints. So you're sanctified, you're set apart, you're as righteous as you possibly could be, and yet you're called to something, which means you're not quite what you should be. God has something in store for your life beyond what you can see right now. He has a noble purpose for your life, and his noble purpose for your life is that you would be sanctified. In other words, that you would be progressively transformed to look like your Savior. 
That instead of anger and greed and sexual immorality coming out of your life, the fruit of the Spirit would come out of your life. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And that that would be the knee-jerk reaction of your heart as you are transformed to be more and more like Jesus. And so Paul looks at this church and he says, you're in this tension. You've been set apart and you're not yet set apart in your behavior. And so here's my intention in writing you this letter. I want you to know that I'm for you. The purpose of this letter is to bring grace and peace to you. That you would experience God's unmerited favor in an ongoing way in your life and that you would know that you are at peace with God. He's not angry at you anymore. All of his wrath has been poured out on Jesus, so you are fully restored into relationship with Jesus. And I want to call you to walk in that reality. That's the way that Paul writes to and treats brand new unbelievers who say the F word in front of pastors. That's the way he looks at you in your immaturity. Paul is not a scolding apostle because God is not a scolding God. He loves you. He's for you. I think some of you, you're coming to church and you sort of feel guilty that you weren't here last week and you just need God to put his arm around you right now and just to say, good job. I'm glad you're here. That's a step in the right direction. And to hear him cheering you on. Now, I think there's something that I see in myself in the Apostle Paul here. And that is that there's something really special about when you have been a church planter. You've gotten to see a church birthed. And you've gotten to see people come to Christ for the first time. So you remember when they were coming to your church as unbelievers. And you remember when they came to know Christ. And there's just a special affection that you have for them. And I thought of, it's, it's kind of similar to seeing a child born. The first of my kids that I met was my daughter, Aria. And I'll never forget that. I was standing in the room. So she's a twin. And she was the first one to come into this world. And I remember I had a special type of affection for her because when she was born, she was in trouble. So she needed oxygen. And so I, I wasn't able, they didn't hand her straight to me. They actually took her over onto this warming bed. They started hooking her up to oxygen. And I was like, new dad, I'm in this totally vulnerable position. And I'm just like, oh, please, would everything go, go okay? And then it's this weird thing, because then Hazel comes into this world, and I run over to her bed, I find out she's fine, and I immediately go back to Ari, and I'm just like hovering over her bed. It's like, oh, please, please, would you be okay? And I tell Ari, she's getting, getting tired of, of hearing this, but I say to her, when we're having conversations that are hard about her behavior, about something in her life that needs to change, I'll remind her of that moment. I'll say, Aria, I loved you 
the moment I laid eyes on you. And I loved you even more because the moment I laid eyes on you, you were in trouble. See, what was wrong with you drew my heart to you. It didn't push my heart away from you. And the Apostle Paul is reflecting the heart of God when he looks at this immature church and he doesn't shame them, but he says grace and peace to you. And we need that opener to this book in a shame-filled, judgmental, yelling, angry culture. We need the sanity of the Apostle Paul in our lives. And we need to know that this place is set apart. This is not a place of shame. This is not a family where our vernacular is to make fun of each other, to put each other down, to hate on each other, to be self-righteous, to act like we have it all together. The vernacular of this family is grace. To understand that we are all in process of becoming more like Jesus. We are all part of the beauty of the kingdom of God, and we are all certainly part of the mess. So that's the first thing. You've been set apart. The second thing is you have been gifted. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 7, the first half of 7. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gifts. So here's what Paul's recognizing in this young church. He's recognizing that although they're immature, they're very gifted, which tells us something very important about God's grace and his economy. You do not have to wait to serve Jesus until you get your life cleaned up. When you get saved... God gives you spiritual gifts. I would simply define a spiritual gift as a supernatural ability to do something that you weren't able to do before you were a Christian. And so this is like the cherry on top of your salvation. And the, the reason that Paul says that he gifts people in his church, even young, immature believers, is he wants to confirm to you your salvation, so salvation can easily become this abstract thing to us, but when there's this supernatural change in our lives where we were bad at something and then we become good at something, we're like, I must have gotten saved. And so Paul is saying, I see that you're not just saved. There's also evidence that you're saved in your spiritual gifts. So some of you who used to be super judgmental are now merciful. Some of you who would have never gotten up to teach a small group Bible study are now getting up to teach a small group Bible study. Some of you who were never encouraging before are now encouraging to other people. And that is owing, not to something that you did, but is owing to the goodness and the grace of God. This is hard for me to believe because I've only known my wife Melissa as a Christian, but it's fun to hear her talk about her life before Christ. She didn't grow up in a Christian home. 
She didn't have a Christian background. And so she describes what she was like before she was a Christian. And it's kind of alarming to me. I'm like, oh my goodness, you are a savage. But <laughs> Melissa, Melissa, my wife, you ever met my, my wife, Melissa? She would be characterized as merciful, a great listener, super sweet, super kind, super gentle. She's never going to say a word that is going to hurt anyone. She is very accommodating. Sometimes she would say almost to a fault. When she was in elementary school, she was a bully. And she'll describe this to me like one time she said that her and her friends all got the same pair of shoes and there was another girl in the elementary school who went out and bought the same shoes so that she could fit into the group. And Melissa said she was kind of like, you're not in our group. So she rallied the rest of the girls to change shoes so that this girl was left all alone wearing those other shoes. Some of you are looking at me like, oh my goodness, what a horrible person. I know. Um, but anyway, so she, she, actually after she came to Christ, she remembers like thinking, wait a second, I love people now. Uh, this is weird. Like, what happened to me? Like, I'm not just insecure and self-conscious and trying to get on top. Like, I actually care about the needs of other people, and I want to serve them. How did that happen? And one of the evidences of her conversion and repentance is she spent some time writing letters to people that she had bullied throughout her life. Just, I am so sorry. I'm a Christian now. And that's who I was before Christ. This is who I hope to be in the future. And, and I hope this could be some encouragement to you. Guys, that's what happens in the life of a believer. That's what's possible in the life of a believer. He takes the mess of our lives where we are now. And he does something beautiful that is so different than who we were before. That people who knew us before look at who we are now and they say, what happened? And so our mess in the past becomes the opportunity to share about the grace of Jesus with the world around us. And so my encouragement to you is if there is mess in your life now, let your mess become your ministry. Do you know how your mess becomes your ministry? You own it. You talk about yourself in the same way that other people around you see you. They say, yeah, I know, I'm kind of judgmental sometimes. Yep, I lack mercy. I'm unkind. I'm not that encouraging. I'm really sorry. I want to change. And I hope that our community and our small groups can be the type of place that we can have that level of honesty with each other so that there can be real change so that we can all see that God is in our midst and that he is working on each of us and that none of us can take credit for what's happening in our own lives. So those are the first two things. You've been set apart. You've been gifted. And the third thing is you are waiting 
for Jesus. Look what he says to this young church. 1 Corinthians 1, second half of verse 7 through verse 9. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, this is interesting. He's saying, you've been set apart. You are being transformed in the image of Jesus. You have been gifted by the Holy Spirit. And we might get the idea that if we are obedient to Jesus and we are submissive to him, that we will experience a kind of utopia, a kind of heaven on earth. And Paul says, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't get ahead of yourself on this. Yeah, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be beautiful. It's going to be different from the world. But this church and this world is always going to be a train wreck. And so our hope cannot be in finding the perfect church. Just say it, Salt City, long enough and just wait. We'll disappoint you. I'll disappoint you. Because human institutions, even God-given human institutions, are not meant to fulfill us. They're meant to create cravings for God. And so here's the posture of each of our hearts. We are waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're seeing change happen in each other's lives we're learning to walk in the Holy Spirit and be honest and own up about our sin. We're learning to be thankful for other sinners and not judgmental toward them. But we are also recognizing step by step and day by day that we are not home yet. At the end of the day, we are still disappointed with ourselves and others. We're still longing for a community that will finally love us and accept us as we are. We're longing to be face-to-face -face with God and not separated from Him by our sinful choices and actions. And Paul tells us that even the waiting, the ability to keep taking one step, and I think the evidence of that in our culture, honestly, is just not giving it up on the church. It's so cool right now to give up on the church. Like, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but if you're, half your friends found out you were here, they would just hate that. Because the church is just seen as this archaic, old-school, non-progressive group of people who are judgmental toward the world. And one of the things that we need to be passionate about is the church. Because if God loves this beautiful mess of a bride, then we should too. And after all, we're a part of it. And... So he says, he'll sustain you to the end. So God is going to, by his spirit, help you to stay engaged with this group of people. And I would say, cooperate with him. Don't give up so easily. Be faithful. Have some grit. Have some determination. Ask yourself the question, what would my grandparents do? Because, right, that generation tended to be a lot more faithful 
than we are. I think our generation struggles with being faithful. And then look at this. Some of us, we don't long for Jesus to come back, frankly, because we don't know how he's going to evaluate our lives. So we're like, can you just wait a little bit so that I can clean up my act, so that I can prepare myself for heaven? And here's what the Apostle Paul says to this church that's just full of sin. He says that you are going to be presented guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. Next week, we're going to see the very next line in the book of 1 Corinthians is that there's quarreling in the church. They're just fighting. They're just bickering like a bunch of siblings. And Paul says to those people, even though you still have real sin in your lives and you're really in process, I'm confident that you will stand before Jesus guiltless. How can he have that kind of confidence? Because his confidence is not in their ability to clean up their own lives. His confidence is in the faithfulness of God. Do you see the next line? God is faithful. Here's his argument. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's saying if God can save you initially by his grace and call you out of this pagan lifestyle while you're worshiping idols and committing all sorts of sexual immorality, if he can save you and bring you into fellowship with his son, then it is guaranteed that after you're saved, he can take you to heaven guiltless before himself forever. Do you guys know what the word revealing means here? That's kind of an interesting way of saying it, isn't it? As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it true that as Christians, Jesus has already been revealed to us? Like we know about his grace, we know about his cross, we know about his resurrection. But I think this is what Paul's saying. You haven't seen anything yet. The way that Paul describes it himself is now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Like, even your best experience of the grace of Jesus is just a dim reflection of what you'll see there. And I think that our experience of meeting Jesus is going to be similar to the experience of the prodigal son. We're going to be totally surprised. Let me just read part of that story from Luke 15, verses 19 through 23. It'll be familiar to a lot of us, but you'll catch on even if it's not familiar to you. It says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So you remember this wayward son has run away from home. He's spent all of his dad's money. He's lived in immorality. He's done all sorts of crazy things. And now he's working his way toward home. And his, his greatest hope in this moment is maybe my dad will make me one of his hired servants. He says, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, 
Bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Do you guys know that that is your destiny as a child of God? Like, I, I always picture a line. I don't know if the Bible ever says that there's a line to get into heaven. Does anyone else picture this? But I picture a line, and I kind of, like, we're waiting for our chance to, to get into heaven to meet Jesus. And we're kind of like this sun. At least when I picture us in the line, we're like, oh, man. Like, everything that we've ever done wrong and kind of justified in our minds as right is coming to our mind in that moment, and we're like, I don't, I don't think I'm going to get in. Like, I hope maybe, like, I could bargain with Jesus, like, can I be a janitor in one of the houses that you promised to your people? Like, I, I'll take it. Like, the alternative, way worse, I'll take that. And, and so we're sort of bargaining. And then this is what this story makes us hope for and think might actually happen. That's our, that's our, our oh, man, I, I've done so much stupid stuff. We're waiting. And then it's like, Jesus locks eyes with you. And he's like, Drew, hey, welcome home. And he just runs at me like I'm the only person in line and just gives me a big hug. And he's like, hey, you remember reading in the Bible about the marriage supper of the Lamb? Like, that's a real thing. There's a feast in here. And you've got a great seat at the table. Can I show you to the table? And then you sit down at the table, and this is the craziest thing. Jesus himself brings you the food. And you're like, no way. But do you know what the crazy thing about heaven is? That experience of grace will never stop. The revelation of the grace of God will never stop. It's like every day you wake up and it's your birthday. It's a surprise party and all your favorite people are there. And Jesus is just like, I got something else for you. I got something else for you. I got something else for you. Our hope goes far beyond our effort to earn or deserve anything. Our hope is in the grace of Jesus alone. The only thing that qualifies you to be a Christian is that you have to be a sinner. Only sinners are welcome in heaven. Would you come? I just, it's like the greatest privilege of my life to invite other fellow sinners to experience the grace that I've received. And for those of you who have already come, will you join me in continually trying to renew your heart posture and just shake the dust off your heart a little bit and remember that you too have been saved by grace so that you can extend that grace to other people in this room. Let's pray. Jesus, this message of grace is amazing. Like, e even as I'm talking about that, I, I can't believe that that's true. 
that I'll stand before you, that we will stand before you guiltless, that the verdict over our life and our mess and our best attempts to be like Jesus will be not guilty. But it, it won't just be not guilty like in this judge relationship, but it will be not guilty and then welcome home. That you're that good. That your grace is that good. Would we be a people that are marked by welcoming sinners and by receiving grace ourselves? Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.